Wessels, Director of Christian Answers of Austin, Texas, Christian Debater. Please check out our YouTube channel page, See Answers TV. That's C-A-N-S-W-E-R-S-T-V. Just type it into the YouTube search box, then click on one of our links for it. Our channel page features 19 playlists on all types of subjects, such as Jehovah's Witnesses with 17 videos. And by the way, these are videos we've produced ourselves. Mormonism, 14 videos. Seventh-day Adventism, 11 videos. Phony TV Preachers and King James Onlyites, 14 videos. Nation of Islam, Black Muslims, this is of the Louis Farrakhan type, 20 videos. God-hating atheists, agnostics, and know-it-alls, 18 videos. Darwin's Metaphysical Evolution Religion, 17 videos. UFOs, ghosts, magic, spiritual warfare, 16 videos. Islam, such as Sunni Muslims, Shiite Muslims, Alawites, Sufis, 54 videos. Roman Catholicism, Idolatry and the Virgin Mary, 71 videos. Anti-Trinitarians, such as the United Pentecostal Church and Church History, 36 videos. Antichrist cults, the New Age and World Religions, 38 videos. Saved by Works, Baptism, Church of Christ, Campbellism, 69 videos. Hell, Lake of Fire, Unpopular Bible Doctrines, 19 videos. Predestination, Arminianism, and Calvinism, 54 videos. End Times, Supernatural Prophecies, and Tough Bible Questions, 20 videos, and others. Our videos are free to the viewing public. If you'd like to be immediately notified of our latest uploaded videos, then please subscribe to our See Answers TV YouTube channel. If you have an existing YouTube account, then simply click on the subscribe button at the top of our channel page next to our ministry name, Christian Answers of Austin, Texas. If you don't have a YouTube account, then it is easy to set one up at no cost. Just search YouTube, then the YouTube opening page will appear, and to the left-hand side will be a blue button saying Create Account. Click on that and follow the instructions. Matthew chapter 22, beginning with verse 39. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. The second of what? Actually, it was a second answer that wasn't asked for. The question was simply, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And last time we saw that it was a test question, a trick question from an expert in the law of the Pharisees. Jesus answered that first question. He said that you must love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And what he meant by that was that we should be aiming for 
a delight in God, rejoicing in Him above all other things, finding His presence and His promises to be the most rewarding things we can pursue. We saw last time that when you love God, it naturally follows that you will try to please Him. And you will not only please Him, but praise Him. Because we always praise the things we love. From telling the cashier at a restaurant what a wonderful meal we had, to telling a friend what a wonderful writer we're reading, or sharing with someone our delight in beautiful weather, it's natural and usual to praise people we love and tell them, I love you, I appreciate you, you mean so much to me. We can't keep it inside. If something gives us joy, our joy is not complete until we have declared it. And when your joy is in God, the natural expression of that joy is in praise to Him. And from that praise, it then follows that you will joyfully and willingly obey His commandments. Loving God is the greatest commandment. Our goal should be to know Him so well that our relationship to Him rises far above mere duty up into the sphere of actual joy in Him. The great composer Haydn said of God, when I think upon Him, my heart is filled with joy. But Jesus in answering the question, adds something for free, as it were. He says, there's a second commandment. The second is like it. And this must have pricked up the ears of the questioners and all those who were standing there because only a first was asked for. To love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind would have been a commandment that everyone could have agreed with was the foremost commandment upon a little thought at least. Because, of course, it comes out of Deuteronomy 6 where Moses is addressing the Israelites as they are on the very borders of Canaan and he's telling them what is fundamental to them as they go in to take the promised land and live there as the people of God. And he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and might. But Jesus says this is the first and great commandment, and the second is like it. And he adds the second one. And this addition of the second one is actually one of the most profound moments in the story of Jesus because he adds a second commandment that the average Jew and indeed the average reader of the Old Testament for the first time might not have seen as of paramount importance. He adds a, a little commandment that was simply buried in the middle of Leviticus chapter 19. And I'd like you to turn there for just a moment in order to see more clearly what the Lord Jesus does. Leviticus 19. Now there are all kinds of commandments in this chapter. And the point I want to make is that they're all mixed together. 
commandments of all sorts. And this is particularly clear if we simply read from verses 17 through 19. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall surely rebuke your neighbor and not bear sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. You shall keep my statutes. You shall not let your livestock breed with another kind. You shall not sow your field with mixed seed, nor shall a garment of mixed linen and wool come upon you. What I want you to see is the combination of various kinds of laws in one passage of Scripture. In the same breath that Moses said, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, he said, you should not wear a garment of mixed linen and wool. Well, for those of you who have a combination of polyester with your cotton, as I do this morning, or a combination of other materials, synthetic materials with your wool, that would let us out, wouldn't it? You see the problem, don't you? The commandments of the Mosaic Law were so mixed together that they are impossible for a theologian to go into and extract them neatly, as theologians have tried to do for centuries, and say, well, this is moral, and this is obviously ceremonial. They're all of a piece. They're all of one law. And so we must either keep the whole law, or we must understand that a new epoch has come in history, that Jesus has come, being the end of the law, and he is now the new lawgiver, and he alone has the authority to go into the thicket of Leviticus 19 and say, here is a commandment that you might have missed, buried in all of the ceremonial commandments and all of the, all of the case law commandments, and it turns out to be the second most important commandment of all. Jesus supremely shows himself in this instance to be the ultimate interpreter of the law and the new law giver, elevating half of a verse into the second most important commandment. And so as we come back to his teaching in Matthew 22, we see that this is much more of a shock than we might at first realize. This is Jesus almost going into the law with tweezers and plucking something out that had not been imagined as a supreme commandment. This second commandment is you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus goes so far as to say, on these two commandments, hang the entire Bible which is what the Law and the Prophets means there. The Law and the Prophets is a technical term for the books of the Law and the books of the Prophets. And that's why in the New King James Version, suddenly Law is capitalized and also the word Prophets. This second commandment 
is a commandment that goes beyond the very familiar commandment that the Lord Jesus would later give his disciples privately. By the end of this very week in his life, he, would have, he, he will have said to his apostles, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. He makes this the supreme evidence of Christianity. In the understanding of the Apostle Paul, the supreme fruit of the Holy Spirit and the supreme evidence that we are indeed believers. We in the Reformed faith may wish he had said, by this shall all men know that you're my disciples if you are Calvinists. We may wish he had said, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you finally understand eschatology. But no, indeed, he says, by this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And this, of course, is a commandment that is spoken to the family. And we can say, all right, I understand that. This means I'm supposed to love my brothers and sisters in Christ. And I do sometimes. I had a friend who used to greet me by saying, Hello, brother, Jesus loves you and I'm trying. <laughs> do you not feel that way about some people you know? Yes, Jesus loves them, but you can't fathom why. And you're trying your best to do that too. Well, brothers and sisters, Jesus has gone beyond your Christian brother and sister in this verse. Certainly it means your Christian brother and sister who should be the easiest of all people to love. But actually, he speaks of our neighbor, doesn't he? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And here... He is simply summing up all the other commandments concerning personal relationships with both believers and unbelievers. Paul makes this very same point in the 13th chapter of Romans. He shows himself to be a true apostle of his Lord, beginning with Romans 13:8, where he says, Owe no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. If there is any other commandment, are all summed up in this saying. Namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't need specific commandments to tell us what to do to be loving. A couple of years ago, I had an extensive conversation with the first man that this church was ever forced to excommunicate. He had divorced his wife unscripturally. We pled with him not to do it and to be reconciled. And I sat down and explained to him about his excommunication. 
that that was the most loving thing we could have done for him because it was designed to bring him back to God. In other words, I told him it would have been unloving to let him persist in sin. Even the psychologists have a term for unlovingly letting someone persist in sin. They call it enabling. You enable someone when you let them persist in undesirable behavior. The Bible instructs us as to which courses of action are truly loving. So it wouldn't have been the loving thing to do to just wink at the whole thing, look the other way, cluck our tongues and say, well, we want to be a very loving church and we don't want to judge and so on, so we're not going to do anything about this blatant sin in our midst. You see, you can't just say that the law is love and let it go at that. You can't ignore Scripture's commands that tell you how to really love your neighbor as yourself. Now, this isn't easy. We've all loved people who have not appreciated us, or worse, have even turned against us. Sin is the big factor that keeps us from loving as we should, or appreciating love as we should. Nevertheless, we've got a command here, and it's a command to the neighbor even more, to, even more than to the Christian. And if you think this one is hard, well, of course, the Lord Jesus always has something even harder up his robe. And right now, let me read to you what he says in Matthew 5, 43. We've already read this in the Sermon on the Mount, of course, but I won't let you forget it. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And so we might well hear that commandment, love your neighbor as yourself, yes, but I can still grind my teeth and harbor those grudges against my enemy. But Jesus says no in verse 44, but I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you more than others? Do not even the tax collectors or the Gentiles do so? Therefore you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. So brothers and sisters, you may have found it hard to come to grips with loving other Christians. Maybe you've gone a step higher and come to grips with the word neighbor and faced the fact that it included unbelievers as well as believers but I must be more vile and tell you that it means your enemies as well. So this commandment is very difficult. And difficult with some people. It's easier with others. But as I hope you will see today, it's impossible with no one. Let's look first of all at what it's going to cost us. What it's going to cost us. I remember... One of my favorite phrases of my mother-in-law was always, that'll cost you. 
she used to say it when someone would send me a birth announcement or a graduation invitation. <laughs> she was like, that'll cost you. Let me just say it to you with regard to this commandment. This will cost you. Let me explain what the verse is not saying, first of all. That's always nice, isn't it, to start with negatives. That gets us off the hook to a certain extent, and then we get the full ramification of what it's positively saying. Negatively, it is not saying this. It is not saying, love your neighbor as yourself, and to do that, you've got to learn to love yourself first, and of course, that's going to take the rest of your life. So therefore, since you have the option of dying in self-hatred, you don't need to press forward to loving your neighbor because you never learned to love yourself. There are churches who teach what I have just caricatured, that first you must love yourself. First you must have enough self-esteem. The problem with all of us according to modern pop psychology, is that we don't have enough self-esteem. We don't feel good about ourselves. And so we've got to love ourselves first, work on loving ourselves, get to where we can love ourselves, and then we can love others. I've got a little secret for you that is kind of in the category of the Bible's opinion about atheists. Have you ever noticed that the Bible does not allow for the existence of atheists? It just says they knew God. They say in their heart there is no God, and they're fools because they know God. Well, this is one of those little secrets like that. You already love yourself. <laughs> Even those of you who loathe yourselves this morning, love yourselves. Turn to Ephesians 5, 28 through 29. I'd never dare say anything like that without scriptural evidence. <laughs> Ephesians 5, 28 and 29. Husbands ought to love their wives. Now, you, if you haven't gotten there yet, you may think you can finish it. But no, this is Paul's second argument. This is where he gets really down-to-earth practical. If you can't quite love your wife as Christ loved the church, maybe you can manage this, husbands. Verse 28. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. And this is what Paul goes on to say. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. What Paul is saying to you is everybody has an innate self-love. It is manifested sometimes as disgust with oneself because one is not as perfect as one would like to be. But even the poor teenage girl who is bulimic or anorexic, who tortures her body by... Uh, secretly throwing up is just as interested in herself as the girl who thinks that she looks like a million bucks. You see? And even the person who is contemplating suicide 
Because they're so awful and they're so terrible and they're so useless and they're so this, that, and the other thing actually is thinking they are the most important thing in the world to them. Not the feelings of others, not the reaction of those who find them, not the people who will be left behind and will suffer loss. Self-hatred is one of Satan's masterpieces because it is an exquisite disguise for ultimate self-centeredness which is another way of saying self-love. So whether you think you're great or whether you think you're awful, you love yourself and Jesus knows it. And he says, now, love your neighbor as yourself. It's just that simple. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's perfectly fine for us to have self-hatred and self-loathing when we have committed a sin. But once we have gone to God, confessed our sin, pled the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, then we are not to continue with that self-reproach. We are to understand then that we are forgiven sinners and we are to go on in our Christian lives. But our attitude should be the attitude of the Lord Jesus himself who said, I am meek and lowly in heart. Meekness is humility. Meekness is self-forgetfulness. So that you are concerned about others. Paul and Jesus taught that people already love themselves and we are to love our neighbors as ourselves. You can have low self-esteem, still love yourself. It's the same teaching, really, as the golden rule. Whatever you would that men should do to you, do therefore to them. Whatever you would that men should do to you, do likewise to them. I, uh, when when uh, I'm on this subject of love, I find myself wanting to quote John Piper a great deal, and I want to give you another interesting quote from him. He says, um, he says, all of our inborn, uh, no, he said, I'm sorry, let me begin. He says, do we seek to satisfy our hunger? Then we must with similar urgency feed our hungry neighbor. Do we long for advancement in the company? then we must seek out ways to give others as much opportunity and to stir up their will to achieve. Do we love to make A's on tests? Then we must tutor the poor student who would love it no less. Do we hate to be laughed at and mocked? Then let there never be found on our lips a mocking word. To sum up the ancient misunderstanding of the command, love your neighbor as yourself, was the lawyer's attempt to restrict the meaning of neighbor to a certain group and thus to raise a question he hoped would conceal the real problem, his failure to be the person the commandment was calling him to be. You see, Jesus explained this parable very graphic, uh, explained this commandment very graphically in a famous parable, one of his best known. The whole issue of loving one's neighbor as oneself 
was perfectly exemplified in Jesus' story of the Good Samaritan. And in the 10th chapter of Luke, where he tells the story, you remember that there's a certain amount of shock value in it when he says that there was a man who fell among thieves and and, uh, was stripped of his clothing and wounded and so on. And he was lying there half dead on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. And Jesus makes a point by saying that a priest passed by on the other side and a Levite passed by on the other side. And then he makes his audience gasp by saying, but a certain Samaritan. Now, he didn't say it that way, but that's how they heard it. A certain Samaritan passed by. And Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. A certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him. Well, you remember that he bandaged his wounds. You remember that he set him on his own beast, brought him to an inn, took care of him, gave the innkeeper money, and so on, and said, whatever more you spend when I come again, I will repay you. Jesus' probing question was then, so which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among thieves? And the lawyer who was questioning him said, he who showed mercy on him. And then Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. But brothers and sisters, think of the cost to that Samaritan. It cost him time. He had to stop. It cost him energy. He had to get the man on his donkey. It cost him uh, some delay in his journey. He took him to an inn, and it cost him money because he had to give them to the innkeeper. This will cost you. There is a cost of loving your neighbor. The Lord Jesus Christ will help you to bear it. The Lord Jesus Christ is very much aware of the cost. The Lord Jesus will help you count and bear the cost of loving. But the second thing that we have to consider is what I alluded to a while ago, and that is the method of love, the method of love. By what method shall we choose to love people? How should we go about it? And I want to read something to you from the uh, 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 translation of the New Testament done many, many years ago by J.B. Phillips in England. I want to read you a couple of verses that he translated from 1 Corinthians 13, the great love chapter. Listen to how Phillips translates verses 4 through 8. This love of which I speak is slow to lose patience. It looks for a way of being constructive. It is not possessive. It is neither anxious to impress, nor does it cherish inflated ideas of its own importance. Love has good manners and does not pursue selfish advantage. It is not touchy. It does not keep account of evil or gloat over the wickedness of other people. On the contrary, it is glad with all good men when truth prevails. Love knows no limit to its endurance, no end to its trust, no fading of its hope. It can outlast anything. It is, in fact, the one thing that still stands when all else has fallen. All of these are methods 
very slow to lose patience, a way of being constructive, not possessive, good manners, not pursuing selfish advantage, and so on. But if you want to go even further than that and get a concept that will help you love all kinds of people for the rest of your life, let me show you an idea that is embedded in 2 Corinthians. And here I'm going to, again, try to make it a little clearer by reading it out of the NIV. 2 Corinthians 1.23 is where I want to begin. And I hope that you can see where I'm going. 2 Corinthians 1.23 begins this way, and then we'll go into the second chapter. I call God as my witness that it was in order to spare you that I did not return to Corinth. Not that we lorded over your faith, but we work with you to your joy, for your joy, because it is by faith you stand firm. So I made up my mind that I would not make another painful visit to you. For if I grieve you, who is left to make me glad but you, who I have grieved? I wrote as I did so that when I came I should not be distressed by those who ought to make me rejoice. I had confidence in all of you that you would all share my joy. For I wrote you out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. The Apostle Paul is refraining from returning to Corinth. He is speaking of a period of tension in his relationship with the church at Corinth where he is trying to bring about that church's joy. He wants that church to be joyful again, but joyful because of obedience and joyful because they're doing the right thing. And Paul's joy is connected with that church's joy. So therefore, a proper method of loving anyone, a church or a human being, and of human beings, believers, unbelievers, or enemies, is this. To seek the things that will bring someone else true joy the things that will bring someone else true joy, and then you are entitled to derive joy from the joy of the other person. So when Paul says love seeks not its own, it means love does not seek its own way. It does not confine itself to its own interests. So husbands, if you give your wife joy, and then you can be joyful about her joy. Parents, if you give your children joy, you can be joyful about their joy. Many people are unable to derive joy from the joy of others. They're jealous. H.L. Mencken, the, uh, the uh, infidel who used to write for the Baltimore Sun back in the 20s and reported on the Scopes trial and all that, was the man who gave the classic definition of Puritanism. He said, a Puritan is someone who is worried that somebody at some time might be having some fun. Well, the point is, that was, of course, a great caricature of the Puritans who were exceedingly joyful people. 
But the point is there are some people who really don't like joy in others because all it does is underscore their lack of joy and their own mean-spiritedness. Brothers and sisters, we ought to be people who delight in the joy of others. I never will forget that one of the happiest pictures I ever saw in my life was a photograph taken of an orphan after World War II as he clutches a new pair of shoes and smiles up at the sky. And it's a picture that is just designed to warm the cockles of your heart. And the great thing about it is I didn't know the orphan so I can rejoice in his joy. But if I know some of you, I may not like your joy so much. And if I don't, isn't there something terribly wrong with me? Isn't there something shriveled about my heart? Brothers and sisters, we need to find joy in making others joyful. You will be a loving person when you learn to find joy in making others joyful. But Jackson, wait a minute. Early on you talked about that man that the church excommunicated, and you talked about a certain amount of pain and so on. Well, here is the problem. We're seeking the other person's true joy. We're seeking the other person's true joy, not just an immediate smile, not just a response to a joke, not just a reaction to a gift. We are seeking their true joy. And for an example of what I'm talking about, let's consider the neglected last act of the story of the prodigal son. You remember there was an elder brother who was very resentful of the celebration because he had a shriveled heart. And so he was angry and wouldn't go in, and Jesus in the parable says that his father came out and pleaded with him. He didn't deserve to be pled with, but the father did. And he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years I've been serving you, I never transgressed your commandment at any time, and yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours came, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed a fatted calf for him. This is the way the father replies to that. He says, Son, you're always with me, and all that I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad. And he's saying to that son, you are refusing to enter into joy that could be and should be yours by not doing what is right. You're not doing what is right. It was right that we should be merry and be glad for your brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. So what you and I sometimes have to do to be loving is to help the other person do right. So that in doing right, they will know the joy of the Lord's approval. They will have satisfaction in their conscience. They will know the approval of God. And they can be joyful that they have done the right thing no matter what. So we seek true joy for those that we love. The joy of doing that which is pleasing to God in their lives. We lead them on to know the Lord. We sometimes have to lead them through a certain amount of pain. Now you need to repent of this, we say. Or you need to deal with that problem that you're having this way according to Scripture, and it's going to be painful for you to do it. But on the other side, there is joy. 
just as on the other side of the cross of Jesus Christ, there was joy that was set before him, and he endured the cross, scorning the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the Father on high, where he knows joy evermore and dispenses it from his right hand. Brothers and sisters, the method of love is to bring believers, unbelievers, and even enemies toward true joy, to solid joys and lasting pleasures, which none but Zion's children know. And finally, after looking at the cost and the method, let's look at the reason for love. The reason for love. Oh, yes, Jesus commanded it. Jesus commanded it, but is there something which, upon a certain amount of thoughtfulness, we can conclude? is a reason for the commandment. Why would Jesus want us to love the unlovable? Which is basically what he's commanding here. Love not only the lovable, but the unlovable. Well, because of the value of human beings, the value of human beings, they are made, as we talked about several weeks ago, in a very special way. They're made in the image of God. They are the image of God. They are the image in many ways of God's glory. They have rationality and creativity and dominion. They have community. They have a sense of right and wrong. And it is this image of God that gives human beings their value. Now, James uses this concept to chasten us in James chapter 3, verse 9, when he says, oh, let's go with verse 8, no man can tame the tongue. It's an unruly evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the similitude of God. He's speaking of how we sin by cursing men who've been made in the image of God. Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. You see, we are the image of God. Every single one of you here this morning, whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, you're made in the image of God. You who are believers have the great privilege of knowing that the image of God which was fallen and tarnished in you is being restored by God. Romans 8 tells us that we're being conformed to the image of His dear Son. Romans 8.29. Colossians 3.9 and 10 says, Do not lie to one another since you've put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of Him who created Him. The image of God is being renewed in you as you're becoming more and more like Jesus. And it is that that gives you your value, that that gives you your dignity. It is for that reason that Jesus commands people to love you and you to love your neighbor. Now, all well and good until you do like we do as a Reformed church and you begin to read and to pray the Psalms out of the Psalter.
and you come to a certain type of psalm that has been called an imprecatory psalm, a psalm of cursing on one's enemies. And exhibit A, and the only exhibit that I will use today, is the very end of one of our most beloved psalms, Psalm 139. We love this psalm, but it gets kind of ugly toward the end. Beginning in the 19th verse, it says, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, you bloodthirsty men, for they speak against you wickedly. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate them, O Lord, who hate you? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them my enemies. We've prayed that psalm in the Sunday evening prayer meeting. We've prayed that psalm here in Sunday morning worship. Should we? Do we have a right to? How can this possibly dovetail or coincide with what Jesus is commanding us? In this way, Jesus taught us that the rain falls on the just and on the unjust, and there is a general goodwill that God has for the unjust as well as the just. It is a form of love. In our Psalm today, 145, we read where God is loving to all he has made, even toward his enemies. But God will judge the wicked, and he will punish them. And it is right for the church to have a good will for their salvation and treat them lovingly, because many have been saved and we must pray for those who need to be but it is also biblical and proper to pray for God's justice against his enemies. And if they're not going to receive his grace, for his quick and decisive removal of them from the world. Let me give you an example of a quick and decisive removal. One enemy of God that has been rather quickly and decisively removed is Madeline Murray O'Hare here in Austin. She may be still alive, but she is not troubling the church of God nearly so much. And one of the things that uh, she reminds me of whenever I read about her or see an article about her is the way one of my friends dealt with her, which I think is a textbook case of how to reconcile Jesus' second commandment with all psalms about hating the enemies of God. And I've told this story before, but for those of you who have forgotten it or those who are new today, it bears repeating because it is, I think, a good example for us. I had a friend who was invited to do some repairs on Ms. O'Hare's house. And he did repairs and remodeling, and she and her family were very impressed with his work. And so they asked him to come down to the Atheist Center and make repairs there. And he said, no, I'm sorry, I can't. I can make repairs for you personally and do good work for you, but I am a Christian. I serve the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm against everything you stand for, and I cannot go down and repair a building that would imply support for your cause. He made a distinction between her having value as a human being, and the cause that she stood for. And I think that is the way we do it. 
we are loving toward our enemies while at the same time hating the fact that they may be enemies of God, longing, praying, and hoping for their salvation, but being ready to say amen with the Lord Jesus Christ should he condemn them to a well-deserved hell. This is the tension and the balance that we as Christians are called to, and it is that which reflects the mind of God. So it's right for Christians to pray against the enemies of God while at the same time lovingly hoping for mercy and even showing them mercy. These men and women deserve death. By praying for what they deserve, we agree with God should he choose not to save them. But we lament, too, that they're made in the image of God, and we treat them as such insofar as possible. Hello, this is Larry Wessels, Director of Christian Answers of Austin, Texas, Christian Debater. And I'd like to let you know that free newsletters are available from our ministry. Just email us at cdebater at aol.com and give us your mailing address and we'll mail them out to you for free. You can also call us at 512-218-8022 and leave your address there. You can also access all our newsletters online by going to one of our three websites called biblequery.org. Once on the homepage, simply click on the experience box and then scroll down to the newsletter section as shown here. Since our number one most watched video of the over 548 videos we have produced for YouTube at the time of this recording is Unpopular Bible Doctrines number one, The Biblical God No One Wants to Know, with over 433,000 viewings, our latest newsletter is called Unpopular Topic. How Sovereign is God? Our second most viewed YouTube video is Six-Year-Old Wife of Muhammad was okay by the Muslim God Allah, but not by the biblical God of Jesus. With over 341,000 viewings, we also have three newsletters available on Islam. Our video, Debate, Larry Wessels versus two Jehovah's Witnesses at a university study center currently has close to 150,000 views. See our newsletter on the Jehovah's Witnesses. Jehovah's Witnesses deceive deceivers. Our video is Jesus God Almighty in the flesh, meaning the second person of the Trinity, or is he something else, has over 101,000 viewings. See our newsletter, Testimony to the eternal Godhead, the Trinity. Our video, Biography, the famous 19th century Prince of Preachers, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, a man of God, has close to 89,000 views. See two of our newsletters with lead articles from sermons by Spurgeon. Our video, UFOs, Ancient Aliens or Beings of the Fourth Dimension, number one, fact or fiction, has over 207,000 viewings. Not only do UFOs and the occult use the same disciplines, such as levitation, teleportation of objects, psychokinesis, clairvoyance, automatic writing, and telepathy, but their theologies are completely foreign 
to biblical Christianity. UFO theologies include everything from reincarnation and evolution to man achieving cosmic godhood, but they do not include Jesus Christ as the only mediator between God and man, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. We have two newsletters related to the world of the occult to which UFOs are a part. Our video, Former Roman Catholic Bride of Christ Nun Testifies of Abnormal Life in the Convent, has over 67,000 viewings. Our video featuring former Roman Catholic Rob Zins, who has a Master of Theology from Dallas Theological Seminary, historical split between Roman Catholicism and the Christ of the Scripture, man's word or God's word, has over 53,000 viewings. See our two newsletters on the subject of Roman Catholicism. Our video, Cult of Ellen G. White, number one, Beginnings of the 19th Century Religion, called Seventh-day Adventism, has over 48,000 viewings and features former Seventh-day Adventist Wallace Slattery, who has 44 years' experience with this religion. Our playlist, called Dealing with Seventh-day Adventism and Their Prophetess, features 15 videos with 14 hours of material. See our newsletter, Seventh-day Adventism, True or False. For theological music lovers, see our video, Favorite Old-Time Christian Bluegrass Gospel Music, Psalm 98, verses 4 and 5 with over 214,000 viewings. We have also posted several music videos by my own daughter, Marlena Wessels, from her CD, Win This Fight, songs she has written and performed herself. To see our music videos, please go to our main YouTube channel page, scroll down to our multiple playlists, arrow over to our playlist called our radio shows with national Christian authors and music vids. Once there, scroll down to the bottom of the playlist where the music videos are listed. I could go on and on, but this should be sufficient for now. Don't forget to check out our main YouTube channel, See Answers TV, which stands for Christian Answers Television, also which has over 19 playlists by topic as you scroll down our channel page.